First Timothy chapter 6, we begin in verse 3. If any man teach otherwise and consent not to wholesome words, even the words of our Lord Jesus Christ, and to the doctrine which is according to godliness, he is proud, knowing nothing, but doting about questions and strifes of words, whereof cometh envy, strife, railings, evil surmisings, perverse disputings of men of corrupt minds, and destitute of the truth, supposing that gain is godliness, from such withdraw thyself, but godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into this world, and it is certain we can carry nothing out. And having food and raiment, let us be therewith content. But they that will be rich fall into temptation and the snare, and into many foolish and hurtful lusts, which drown men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money is the root of all evil, which while some coveted after, they have erred from the faith and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. But thou, O man of God, flee these things and follow after righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, meekness. Fight the good fight of faith. They hold on eternal life whereunto thou art also called and hast professed the good profession before many witnesses. I give thee charge in the sight of God who quickeneth all things and before Christ Jesus who before Pontius Pilate witnessed the good confession that thou keep this commandment without spot, unrebukable until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. We'll end our reading in verse 14. We know the Lord will add his blessing to the reading of his word for his name's sake. Would call your attention in particular to verse 12 from this portion we just read from in 1 Timothy 6. Notice this command. Fight the good fight of faith. They hold on eternal life whereunto thou art also called and hast professed the good profession before many witnesses. Fight the good fight of faith. They hold on eternal life. The text reminds us, doesn't it, that the Christian life is indeed a life of conflict. In fact, the text presents to us the truth that there are two sides to the conflict. We fight the battle on two fronts, as it were. On the one front, there are those things that we fight against and withstand. The earlier part of the chapter presents these things to us. We fight against teaching that is contrary to the words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the doctrine which is according to godliness. May God help us to stand fast for the truth, to know it, to be jealous for it, to defend it, to articulate it. We fight against that worldliness that brings those who will be rich into temptations and snares and many foolish and hurtful lusts. According to verse 9, reminds me of the 
parable of the soils and among the things that chokes the word and makes it unfruitful is when our longing for the things of this world becomes the dominant force in our lives. Uh, The deceitfulness of riches, they're described there, that can choke the word and make it unfruitful. May the Lord help us to keep things in their proper perspective. The scriptures in other places puts a strong emphasis on those things that must be fought against. For if ye live after the flesh, ye shall die, Paul writes, Romans 8.13. But if ye through the Spirit do mortify the deeds of the body, ye shall live. Mortify, therefore, your members which are upon the earth, fornication, uncleanness, inordinate affection, evil concupiscence, and covetousness, which is idolatry. That's Colossians 3 and verse 5. Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. It's in 1 John 2 and verse 15. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. It's in James chapter 4 and verse 7. Now the intensity in which the battle must be fought on this front is brought out in the words of our text, Fight the good fight of faith. That word fight comes from a Greek word from which we get the English word agonize. Okay? So we could read the text agonize, the good agony of faith. The picture emerges of the Christian with resolute determination, putting forth continual, stress, uh, strenuous, gut-wrenching energy to resist the forces of the world and the flesh and the devil. It distresses me to see how in some Calvinistic circles, especially, this, this part of the conflict is in a large measure denied. Our salvation and sanctification are matters of grace, and that's true. Our will plays no part, some would say, in Calvinistic circles. And there nothing could be further from the truth. The will, renewed by God's Spirit, becomes engaged in coming to Christ. And that same will is to be ever after used with spiritual fervency, as we are instructed by Paul to work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who worketh in you, both to will and to do of his good pleasure. Philippians 2.13. You see how the will of the Christian is engaged in his life, in his battles, in the conflict. We are not such hyper-Calvinists or such fatalists that we think that we just live life totally in the passive mode. No, where the Spirit of God is at work, the Christian's will is wrought upon and strengthened and engaged, therefore, even in this good fight of faith. So there is the battle that is fought along the front of those things that we resist and fight against. The other front to the battle is along the lines of those things that we fight for, or in other words, that we strive to possess. 
things that are ours, but we have to fight in order to possess and enjoy them. Of course, the book of Joshua comes readily to mind. What an illustration of the believer's sanctification. Uh, How is it that the Israelites gained the land of Canaan? Well, God gave it to them. But the fact that God gave it to them did not mean that all the pagan, uh, God-hating resistors to the will of God that occupied the land were simply going to surrender and say to the Israelites, okay, God gave it to you, Uh, we'll get out of your way and let you have it. Uh, No, that's not quite how it shook out, is it? They had to fight to take possession, even of that, that God freely gave them. So there is that aspect to our battle. We fight for certain things. We strive to possess things that are ours, given to us by Christ. And so our text presents to us this front in these words, fight the good fight of faith, lay hold on eternal life. Lay hold on eternal life. Fight for the life that God has given you in Christ. Lay hold on it. It is possible, and many of us have witnessed and experienced this, that in this fight of faith, we can be so focused on what we fight against that we lose sight of the fact that there are things also that have to be fought for. The church at Ephesus comes to mind. A church that could be and was, in fact, commended by Christ in the book of Revelation for the effective warfare that they were waging along the front I've already described. But, in fact, they were very weak along the front that we're now considering. They had, in other words, lost their first love. Oh, they knew what to contend against, but they had in their contention and in the strain, I suppose, and the consistency of their warfare, they had lost their first love. They had failed to fight for what they were supposed to possess. I believe that one of the devil's strongest delusions in Christendom is the delusions that there are no blessings that can be enjoyed in greater measure. He would have us believe and act as if eternal life were simply a part of our creed and something that really doesn't come to take effect until our time in this world is up and then our time in the next world kicks in. It has little or nothing to do with the present experience. It pertains strictly to the future after death. Don't believe it. It's the devil's lie. And you know, if the devil can weaken us on this front, then he'll gain much ground on the other front as well. Christians who have nothing to strive for eventually have little power for striving against the forces of ungodliness. So I'd like, therefore, to draw your attention for a minute or two this afternoon to the battlefront of laying hold on eternal life. Lay hold on eternal life. It is your portion 
It is given to you by Christ. But that doesn't mean that you don't have to fight for it. Lay hold on it. It's an appropriate subject for us today because the place of prayer where this precept is followed is certainly something that we need to be constantly engaged in. Prayer is very much a part of what it takes to lay hold on eternal life. So consider with me, first of all, what it is that we seek to lay hold of. Eternal life, okay? Again, the words of our text, fight the good fight of faith, lay hold on eternal life. Christ himself had much to say on the subject of life. He identified it as eternal or everlasting life. Whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. This term certainly identifies the duration of the life that we gain in Christ. It is never-ending life. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And whosoever liveth and believeth in me shall never die. John 11, verses 25 and 26. It is an experience that begins in this life and also looks ahead to glory. Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me hath everlasting life and shall not come into condemnation, but is passed from death unto life. Verily, verily, I say unto you, The hour is coming, and now is, when the dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God, and they that hear shall live. That's John 5, verses 24 and 25. And that text is very instructive when it comes to life. It views everlasting life both as a present possession and as a future blessing. It's both, okay? Don't think of it only in terms of one or the other. It embraces both a present possession and a future blessing. The hour is coming, that's future. And now is, that's present. When the dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God, and they that hear shall live. It views everlasting life then from the perspective of contrast, It's contrasted to condemnation and death. And here again, the present and future is presented. He shall not come into condemnation, that's future, but is past, that's present, that's right now, from death unto life. Right now kind of life. In a similar vein, in another passage in John's Gospel, Christ compared life to light and contrasted it to darkness. John 8 and verse 12, Christ says, I am the light of the world. He that followeth me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. The Apostle John certainly understood Christ's relationship to life. He reveals Christ as the very source of life. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. 
He alone records Christ's words, which reveal Christ as the very essence of life. When Christ says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, John 14, 6, this is life eternal. This is Christ now in the context of prayer. He's praying to his Father in John 17 and verse 3. You could say, here is perhaps one of the best definitions you find in the New Testament about eternal life. This is life eternal, that they might know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom thou hast sent. So, question, if I were testing you now, what is eternal life? Answer, it is to know God and to know Christ. That's what eternal life amounts to. So Christ is revealed as being the very essence of life. He it is who gives life meaning and purpose and fulfillment. Christ had something to say, you know, about the quality of this life. He says, I am come that they might have life and that they might have it more abundantly. John 10 and verse 10. Uh, Your life is supposed to be characterized then as an abundant life, not as a, you know, a meaningless, purposeless, dull and boring kind of life, but an abundant life. He illustrated this abundance by comparing this life to a well of water within springing up into everlasting life. John 4 and verse 14 An interesting text in the book of Revelation, chapter 12 and verse 11. I know I referenced this verse quite often. I'm pretty sure I referenced it this morning. Speaking of the Christian's warfare against the devil, it says, And they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, and they loved not their lives unto the death. I've often wondered, how is it that someone can love not his own life even unto death? And then I discovered a text in the Psalms, and I've got this written in my margin right next to Revelation 12, verse 11. You might write it in your margin. Compare Psalm 63 and verse 3, which says, because thy loving kindness is better than life, my lips shall praise thee. Now, when we read in Revelation that they loved not their lives unto death, uh, that's not to suggest that they were suicidal or that, that they even had some kind of martyr's complex. It's speaking of a particular kind of life. The life that we have now in the present state of things. Life in this present evil world. Life in which we are constantly having to fight against besetting sins. Oh, there are things that are way better than this life including the life that we have gained in Christ, the everlasting life that is to come, in which his loving kindness will be our portion and our portion that we know and appreciate in ways that we don't know 
and appreciate in the present state of things. To find Christ, then, is to find something that, in a sense, is more precious than life itself, especially life in the current state of things. And when we recognize that he gave his life, that we might have life, and that he gives us abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness, Romans 5.17, then it places us in a position, according to that text, that we should reign in life. Let me call your attention to that text again, okay? Romans 5, look at it with me for a moment. This is my signature verse. We have in our youth camp, you know, one of the things that all the campers do toward the end of camp, for whatever reason, is get as many people as you can to autograph your camp t-shirt. You girls get plenty of autographs on your camp t-shirts. And um, if I am asked to autograph the t-shirt of a camper, and some of them ask me to, then I will write my name and invariably follow up with this text, Romans 5 and verse 17. That's why I refer to it as my signature text, so to speak. Let me read that verse to you. For if by one man's offense death reigned by one, much more they which receive abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness shall reign in life by one Jesus Christ. And I love that focus on reigning in life. That does not mean that life is easy. That does not mean that you are in charge of everything to such a degree that everyone bows before your throne and gives you whatever you want. Uh, carnal reasoning thinks that way. That's what it means for me to reign in life. All I have to have is my own way uh, whenever I want it. And if you just give me my own way every time I want it, then I will be reigning in life. Uh, no, that's the carnal notion of what it means. And uh, nobody attains that. That's a mark of the fall of man when everybody expects the world to revolve around them. But reigning in life, I take to mean being on top of life instead of life being on top of you. And how is that to be accomplished? Well, Paul gives you two things that are necessary in order for that to come about. You must receive abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness. And if you have those two things ministered to your soul, then you will be on top of life instead of life being on top of you because you will have an assurance of Christ's favor and Christ's acceptance, Christ being with you and for you, his righteousness being imputed to you, that places you in a position where you are able to reign in life. I was so thrilled at our last youth camp when we focused on the character of Joseph. I was very happy that they assigned to me Genesis 39 because that chapter so vividly illustrates Joseph 
reigning in life. And yet when you look at his external circumstances, it might have you scratching your head and saying, how could it possibly said of that man that he was reigning in life? He was betrayed by his brothers. He was sold into slavery. He was purchased by um, the captain of the guard uh, under Pharaoh. And before he was done, he would go from bad to worse. He was accused by Pharaoh's wife of doing the very thing that she herself was doing, trying to entice this man uh, to draw near to her in a sinful way. And then when she failed in her constant attempt, she accuses Joseph of the very sin she was committing. And as a result, Joseph goes from uh, the slave to the prisoner in an Egyptian dungeon and yet, if you look at the beginning of that chapter and at the end of that chapter, it says that Joseph was a prosperous man because the Lord was with him. A vivid example of a man who could reign in life, external circumstances notwithstanding. That's what our life should be. That's what spiritual life is all about. That's what abundant life that Christ speaks of uh, is illustrated by Joseph. And we know this, don't we? The Christian does not pass his time in this world in flowery beds of ease. He faces battles. He faces opposition. He is subject to trials and afflictions. But the difference between the Christian and the worldling should be that the worldling is under the weight of the world while the Christian reigns over it, even in the midst of his trials. Why? Because to have this kind of life that Christ is describing, this eternal life, is to have God's favor. Come what may, God favors you, he is with you, he is for you, and nothing in this world can ever, ever separate you from his love. And if the truth of that will be ministered to your soul by the Holy Spirit, then you won't be pulled down by any circumstances in life. The question and the challenge we face then is this. If we have this eternal life, and it is a present possession, and it is said to be by Christ abundant, bountiful, and rich, if Christ is the essence of that life, and through this life we know him, then how is it that we can at times be so dead, so to speak? And the answer is found here by going back to the words of our text in 1 Timothy we have not succeeded in laying hold on this eternal life, but rather have let these things slip. And this leads to the next point of consideration. Having some idea of what it is we strive to lay hold of, let's consider next how we lay hold of eternal life. Considering what we've already said on the subject of eternal life, we could say that to lay hold of eternal life amounts to laying hold of Christ himself. 
The precept is illustrated a number of times in the Old Testament. Song of Solomon, chapter 3, verse 4, I found him whom my soul loveth. I held him and would not let him go. Psalm 63 and verse 8, My soul followeth hard after thee. Thy right hand upholdeth me. Perhaps a more vivid example can be found in Genesis 32, where we have the account of Jacob wrestling with the angel of God. He refused to let go through that struggle, even though it went on through the night. He refused to let go, though the angel dealt him a crippling touch. He refused to let go, though the angel beckoned him to release him. He would not let go until he had complete assurance that God's covenant promise to him would be fulfilled. And as a result of his laying hold of God, he was forever changed. He gained a new name. That's something to contemplate, isn't it? Because names have much greater significance in the Bible than what we generally give them today. What does a name amount to today? Well, it's the thing that you write on that sticker that you put on your lapel pin so people know what to call you uh, at a social gathering. Okay, it's a badge of identification. But in the Bible, a name is so much more than that. Jacob gained a new name and became a prince who could prevail with God and with men, and hence the name Israel was given to him. The Apostle Paul in the New Testament also exemplifies what it is to lay hold on eternal life. He writes to the Philippian Christians that he is willing to count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus. That was his priority. Nothing is as important as this, that I may gain more of the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus. And though Paul had attained so much in terms of that life with Christ, he would recognize that there is still, however, much more to be attained, not as though I had already attained, either were already perfect, but I follow after, if that I may apprehend that for which also I am apprehended of Christ Jesus. Brethren, I count not myself to have apprehended, and that Paul hasn't apprehended it, given what we know of his knowledge of Christ, I dare say, I haven't apprehended it either, nor have you. But this one thing I do, Paul writes, and we emulate with God's help, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forth unto those things which are before, I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. Here is great advice indeed. Forget the things that are behind. How often we fail on this score and are held back from so much. We prefer to linger and stew in our failures and shortcomings and disappointments. Paul says forget them. It's time to move on. 
As the Lord said to Joshua, there is yet much land to be possessed. We cannot reach forth if our hands are behind us, clinging to past circumstances, whether those circumstances be defeats or victories. May the Lord grant to us the forward look of apprehending more of Christ. And so laying hold on eternal life in the most practical way possible amounts to this, coming to Christ in prayer and positively affirming by faith all that he is to us, all that he provides for us. He is your joy. He is your provider. He is your righteousness. He is your peace. He is your king, your great high priest. He is your spouse. He grants to you pardon and acceptance. He provides for you guidance and protection and provision for your every need. He freely and fully gives you his loyalty and love. He gives to our lives then purpose and meaning and satisfaction. Now taking all of this into account, it can lead you to conclude that to neglect Christ, then, is to neglect life itself. To lay hold of Christ is to enter into life and to enter into it more fully. May God help us, then, in our spiritual battle to continue to contend against the things we should but not to forget the things that we have to strive for laying hold on eternal life. Let's close then in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, as we bow in thy presence now and bring this meeting to a close, we thank you again for Christ. Help us not to be so naive as to think that we've gained in our experience all that there is to be gained of Christ. Oh, Lord, we see through a glass darkly. And there is so much more of Christ that can be known and that we need to know. Help us in our striving, dear God, to strive to know him whom to know is life everlasting. And may our striving be from the perspective of the gospel, the fact that he owns us. He died for us. He is with us and for us. So Lord, bless us in our striving to lay hold of Christ, who is our life. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.